Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. I'm Kara. I have the pleasure of speaking on childbirth and blood in the Bible. Um, yeah, there's a lot of new people. Um, I've been at Awaken, so I'm new to you, I should say. Um, I've been at Awaken for like six years. I'm like first gen new, then there's second gen new, third gen new. We're all new, except for the claggers. Hi, guys. Jeff's been here longer. But it's nice to meet you. I haven't spoken in a long time, and I'm excited. I'm always very nervous, so I'll try to speak slowly and not speed up. Um, but yeah, I, I picked this sermon topic, and as I got into it, I was like, ooh, this is a bit trickier than I thought. So I just want to, before I jump in, um, clarify some things. Um, so the point of the sermon is not to argue that it's women's role to have children. So to the women in the room, I want to say very clearly, if you're a woman and you never want children, if you are unable to have children or do not yet have children, you haven't missed the point of God's plan for you. Um, there are some verses in, in this sermon that have been misinterpreted um, pretty painfully for women for thousands of years. And... Uh, and they've put women in a box, and I just want to say this sermon is not meant to be that box, and I ask for grace as I speak to you. Um, it's a sermon that's meant to be about the beauty of childbirth and about how women are one way that humanity reflects Mother God. Um, so I just I acknowledge all those in the room for whom childbirth is not something um, that you want or that you will have in your life. Um, and I want to pray for us before I start. So Lord, I pray that you would carry my words to land safely and peacefully for people. I pray that they would give hope and that they would bring healing. And I pray that these words would not bring harm. Spirit, may you guide them to land in the way that you would have them land. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, I, I was excited about this sermon topic. I've had three kids in four years, um, so childbirth has been pretty central to my recent life experience. Here's a picture of my son Caleb the moment he was born. My sister was our birth photographer. Um, and I love this picture because it's so raw and it captures how like exhilarating and crazy an experience it was for him to be born. He was born in four hours. Um, he's three now. He's here tonight. He's very loud. So you've all heard him. Um, he has blessed you with his presence today. Um, yeah, so it, it was incredible. I, I loved my, my birth with Caleb. Um, but right after I, I hemorrhaged and, uh, it felt like literally the life went out of me. Um, and it was terrifying. My midwife kind of froze, didn't know what to do. And eventually she called in an OB who set things right. But it was very scary for a while there. And it took me quite a while to recover. I remember going to Market Mall and I like couldn't walk a quarter of the way around the mall because I was so weak. And it wasn't like my body didn't hurt. My body wasn't like wounded. It was just that like I didn't have the life in me to walk or move. And um, Caleb's first Sunday that I brought him to church was Easter Sunday, and I couldn't even hold him through the whole service, and he was only seven pounds. I had to hand him off because I just didn't have the strength in my body to hold my son. 
And so that's, that's kind of where I'm going to start. Um, I really enjoyed reading about how in Jewish culture, um, the life is in the blood, which Nikayla's talked about a bit, um, because I experienced that. I experienced the life going out of me with the blood that I shed to bring my son into life. And so for Jewish women, when they gave birth, because the blood was shed in the process, they were considered unclean. So that meant that they had to remain away from other people and from holy places until a certain amount of time had passed, and then they were allowed back with the assembly. And it was the same with menstruation, again, for that same reason. Um, the shedding of blood for Jews meant the loss of life or um, the loss of, of like mother's life because it was in the blood. She didn't die, but, but part of her life was shed. And then also possibly the potential for life because a child wasn't conceived. And in Jewish culture, that was significant, that a child wasn't conceived with that lifeblood. Um, so women were set apart. I'm just going to move this aside. This is not my sermon notes. Yeah, really cool looking puzzle. It'll be super helpful for me tonight, I think. So imagine... In ancient Israel, um, there's no birth control. Um, women are constantly either menstruating or giving birth. So they lived in this rhythm of um, life created in their culture for a child, and then that blood was either lost or it was shed in the creating of a new life. So they're constantly seeing this lifeblood come and go from their bodies. So women are set apart again and again and again by this process of creating life. And it came at a huge cost for them as they were set apart. And, and for me as well, I felt like birth came at a cost, and I especially felt it with Caleb. Um, it wasn't just the three weeks that it took my body to replenish the blood supply, but I experienced pretty intense postpartum depression, and that can often be caused after a hemorrhage because you're just like, you're missing significant nutrients that you need in your body to recover after birth. Um, so birth came at a huge cost. And I was pretty excited in writing this sermon to feel a solidarity with ancient women over this experience of childbirth and their perspectives over what happened. But um, as it turns out, scripture's not really the place to, um, to learn about women's perspectives on childbirth. And I knew that kind of, like I knew women didn't write the Bible, but I was particularly disappointed by the male authors. Um, they really don't relay women's perspectives. And, and I went on to learn even further that Jewish men weren't even permitted to be present in birth. Um, midwives helped the mothers deliver, and then like close, close female friends and relatives were there to support the moms as they delivered in ancient Israel and in a lot of the ancient world. But like Israel especially, the men knew very little about childbirth. Um, and some evidence in the Bible actually suggests that authors were like totally ignorant of childbirth. So there's a verse here. It says, um, ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turned pale? Now, don't change it yet, Sarah. Actually, yeah, you can change it to this next one. Um, so if you've ever been in labor, watched a movie, anything in between, like you have a giant belly. You can't hold your loins when you're delivering a child, right? He doesn't know. He's just like imagining what it may have been like. You grab your hips or your back. If you're experiencing back labor, you hold the hands of the women who are supporting you. But he doesn't know that. So he's trying to imagine this is what it's like in childbirth to convey their distress. Um, don't change it yet. So this next photo is like super embarrassing, but it's like that much more funny. So I've decided to share it with you. <laughs> you can go ahead. Now, 
This is the face of a woman in labor. This is me. Now, it's in black and white, but like my face is not pale here. I'm pushing or trying to actually figure out how to push. It's not as straightforward as you would think. But my face was not pale in labor. It was bright red. Unless something has gone terribly wrong, your face is red with the exertion of the contractions of pushing out a child, OK? So all that to say, you can change it now. And let's pretend we never saw it. But um, all that to say, male authors, they didn't know a lot about birth. In fact, they knew very little about what a birthing woman behaved like. So for the authors in scripture, it was more about birth as a symbol than about the women's actual experience. And um, that matters. So childbirth in scripture, it's typically a metaphor of God birthing a nation. So the authors are using women's births as a symbol. So Sarah gives birth to Isaac. It, for the author, is God's fulfillment of the promise to create a nation as numerous as the stars. Rebecca gives birth to Jacob and Esau, and it foreshadows these two nations that are going to be at odds with each other. And even more important than that, Jacob later wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. It's the birth of the nation of Israel that's foretold throughout scripture. Israel's wives, Leah and Rachel, birth 12 sons. Now, it's not about their birth experiences, whether they were able to get around Market Mall. It's about how they birthed the 12 tribes of Israel, which is the foundation of Israel. Now, every birth, or not every birth, but most of the births throughout scripture are the authors pointing to the fact that God is fulfilling his promise to build a nation as his plan for restoration. And like, I didn't find that super compelling. I was like, oh, sweet, socio-political realities of Israel preaching on, yay. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, and, and like, it's a little bit offensive to me as a woman. I'm like, I, I wanted to hear from the women and I wanted their births to be more than a symbol. But it did get exciting because God birthing a nation actually really matters and women are at the center of it. So God's birth of Israel is just, a, just it's a critical part of God's overarching story of restoring creation. And this is where it got interesting for me. So we're going to take a minute and dwell in Genesis 3 and in the garden, um, because that's where God's plan for restoring creation begins, with Eve. So Eve's name means literally mother of all living. And Eve and Adam eat the apple. And both of them go on to receive a curse or a consequence for what they've done. For what they've done. So for Eve, that's traditionally that she has increased labor pains in birth. And for Adam, it's increased labor working the ground. So Eve's, Eve's curse was really intriguing as I was studying. Um, the traditional translation is, yeah, she'll experience increased labor pains in birth. Now the Hebrew word that's used in that verse is itzavan, meaning work or labor. And scholars always have to translate, like it's, it's always figuring out how do I take the meaning of this word, literal and metaphorical and like the context and translate it into um, our current day. That's fair, but what they've done here is they've taken um, that idea of worker toil in Itzavan, and they've, they've translated it into labor pains, like having to do with childbirth. Um, now, uh, the same word for worker toil, Itzavan, is used in Adam's curse, but there, obviously, the scholars didn't translate it into connotations with childbirth. It just means work. Adam's going to work the ground. And even more interesting is there's no mention of childbirth in Eve's curse at all. The Hebrew word that's used is pregnancies. So with that in mind, there's a more literal translation of Eve's curse. Um, and it is, instead of increased labor pains, it's increased work. And instead of childbirth, it's pregnancies. Which leaves us with a more literal translation. It's up here. She'll experience increased work and increased pregnancies. 
Can you throw that one up there, Jeff? Or Sarah? Yeah. So that is different. It's different from she'll experience increased pain in childbirth, but just set that aside for a second and think about that idea of the consequence of what Adam and Eve has done is Eve is going to experience more work and more pregnancies. So that makes a lot of sense for agrarian lifestyle. Uh, lifestyle. Now this is a, a painting or drawing by an artist who's portraying German working class, but it makes a lot of sense for Adam and Eve and what they're moving into as well because they're moving from the luxury of life in the garden to eking out a living um, in the land. They can't just walk up and pick like hanging fruit. They have to actually work the land in a very difficult place to farm to survive. Um, and at the same, so, so in light of that, you have to work the land to survive, not just men, women as well. And also you have to have a lot of children because you need other people to work the land. And then when you get really old, you need children who will take care of you and continue to work the land when you're not able to feed yourself. So the curse in that literal translation, it makes a lot of sense for the realities that Adam and Eve are facing and that God is sharing with them. And just think about how much that sucks. Like they're moving from this life of luxury to a life of like just barely making it with never ending work. They've had this intimacy with God in the garden and they're moving into suffering and death in the land. But God shows up with a promise. So he outlines the consequences of their choice. And then he also says, but there's hope. And God puts Eve right at the heart of that plan. And he does it by speaking to the serpent. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. His heel. So Eve took the apple from the serpent, win for the serpent. But God comes and says, Eve, you're going to be the one who crushes the serpent, and you're going to do it with the birth of your child. And this is where the real meaning of Eve's curse matters, because in the traditional view on Eve's curse, childbirth is the punishment, right? Eve takes the apple, and God punishes her with really painful childbirth. But in fact, childbirth isn't even mentioned in the curse. It's first mentioned in the blessing. So childbirth is actually the reason for hope, not the reason for shame, and it's the way that the curse will be overcome. That's the real story of Genesis 3. And what's even more cool is that God took the woman who handed Adam the apple, and instead of blaming her or subjugating her like humans have done throughout history, he puts her right at the heart of God's plan to restore creation because it's the birth of Eve's offspring that's going to overcome death, and it's the shedding of her blood in childbirth that's the way to life. And I think it's important to not miss that because these are patriarchal authors, right? They're in a culture that doesn't highly value women. They know very little about childbirth, and even they can't ignore the fact that women are right at the heart of what God's doing to save creation. So with that in mind, fast forward through scripture. You've got Sarah, through whom God births a nation as numerous as the stars. You have Rebecca, through whom Israel is born. You have Leah and Rachel, that the 12 tribes of Israel come from. And scripture goes on with this narrative of God building a nation and women birthing in order to crush the head of the serpent and death. So you have Jael. She drives a stake into the head of the enemy. And the author is symbolically showing how she's destroying the bringers of suffering and death for Israel. You have Tamar. She's a victim of this horrific rape and abuse and violence. Who's the grandmother to the Messiah? She is the grandmother, the prince of peace. There's Mary, who's disgraced. Um, unmarried, unclean, but she's pregnant, and she bursts the one who turns purity, head, purity culture on its head. So scripture is telling over and over again these stories of these 
holy births that so often we overlook, but they're so critical in the birthing of this nation all throughout. And mothers are at the heart of this restoration plan that, that Mother God is doing over and over and over again. So I'm a mother. That's really cool. I love that the blood that I shed and the life that I've created is part of this, like, crowd of witnesses who are mothers who have been resilient in the face of this curse and brought forth life again and again and again, and they're crushing the serpent of death. But it has to mean something for all of us because we're not all mothers, and we all matter, and we're not like, oh, mothers are right at the center and the rest are at the margins, but you still matter, right? Like we all are central to what God is doing. We are all the beloved of God. So how do we all fit within this story? Um, And I think Jesus gives the answer to Nicodemus in John 3. So it's this story where Jesus um, is in a house and a Jewish Pharisee shows up unannounced in the dark. And they have this mysterious, even like super weird conversation under the cover of darkness. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus is like, what? How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answers, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. So two births there in what Jesus is saying. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So Jesus basically says, you shouldn't be surprised that birth is at the heart of the story. And like, Nicodemus is not the only one who's surprised. I grew up in the church and I would never have talked about birth as being central to, like, God's plan for redeeming creation. But Jesus goes straight to that topic, and he says there's two births. One birth in water, and one birth in spirit. So first, everyone in this room has been born in water. We're all born from the waters or the amniotic fluids of our mothers. So we're all descendants of Eve. We've all inherited that curse from the garden where we um, we are defying death by having... By, by c- continuing life, by having children, humanity isn't dead. That's the defiance to the curse that we have through Eve. But we're still toiling and suffering and dying because we've still inherited that curse. So we're all born of water from Eve, but at the same time, there's a second birth that Jesus is talking about, and it's being born in the Spirit. And the first one born in the Spirit is Jesus. That's why Scripture calls him the firstborn of the dead. And that name alone indicates that there are more children to come. He's the firstborn. He's our older brother. So our older brother is like, hey, guys, you're being born after me. Here you come. And Jesus' birth is marking the beginning of a new era. And it's the labor of the mother of God in which she's birthing a new creation. She's laboring to restore all that was broken. And she's overcoming death once and for all. So we're all born twice. In our first birth, we inherit the toil, the suffering, and the death. But in our second birth to Mother God, we inherit rest and wholeness and eternal life. And Jesus isn't the only one who talks about this. Paul writes about the holy labor of God in Romans 8. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. So we're in this weird period of human history, the now and not yet period in which God has come. Jesus has come and he's overcome death. He walked into the place of death, took the keys and left, right? God holds those keys now. But at the same time, we're still experiencing the groaning and the labor pains, those contractions of Mother God as she's renewing creation. Because if we look around, we know that all is not well. 
Like we're surrounded by profound suffering and pain. We experience it, we inflict it, we witness it. And at the same time, it's confusing because we also see profound beauty and goodness all around us. We experience it and we share it with the people around us. And what we're experiencing are those contractions of that holy labor as, as Mother God's rebirthing creation and birthing all things new. And this is where we come in because it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we're mothers or not mothers. As long as we are a human being, we're the embodiment of Mother God's victory over death. We're the goodness that she's birthed in the face of evil. We are the good, or the, the beauty that's been birthed in the face of evil. We are the, the, let me look at my notes, the beloved. And at the same time, we're made in the image of God. Like we're the children of God and we look like her. Just like we look like our human parents, we reflect Mother God to the world. So we're birthing that goodness. We're laboring to create that beauty. We're the beloved, but we're also working to bring love and toiling against that which brings hate and destruction and death. And these small acts of shalom are just a reflection of the greater labor that Mother God is doing in creation today. And there's, there's small acts and they're big acts, like the common cupboard. That is one small act of shalom that we are doing as a church to combat the food desert in Boness. Um, small acts of shalom are like the mercy that you extend to your extremely annoying and loud toddler or to the extended family who's never going to get you or um, your spouse or partner or friend who offended you for the gazillionth time. Those are acts of shalom that are all part of this greater goodness that Mother God is bringing to creation as she sets all things new. And there are also larger acts of defiance. And I think of the Ukrainian resistance to Russian brutality. It's, it's all part of the labor pains as humanity resists with Mother God, coming against the curse of death that would overcome. But it won't, because God has come. And as we're waiting for this shalom, as we're participating through our own small and big acts of shalom, we also just continue to feel those groans of creation. Like, I love that that metaphor of creation groaning because it does feel like that on a Monday morning you get dragged out of bed you have to deal with the reality of work of broken relationships of mental health and wellness of you know societal stresses and it feels like a groan comes up within your soul and we all know that feeling in different contexts and and it is just these these contractions and labor pains that as we long for things to be complete as we long for creation to be made new and it's just those pains of childbirth. All of us are part of the beautiful story. It doesn't matter who we are, our gender, ethnicity, age, how much money we do or don't have, what country we're from, from we're all part of that story of rebirth. And so I guess as you go out from church today, my blessing for you is to remember first that you are the beloved. You are birds by Mother God when you feel like scum of the earth or like there's no goodness left in me or you witness yourself bringing, you know, destruction and death rather than goodness and life. Remember, you are the beloved. No matter what you do, you are the beloved because Christ has died and Mother God has birthed you and she sees you as her beloved. You are good. And then also remember that your love is birthing goodness in creation. Your love doesn't stop just in your sphere, but it is part of a bigger picture of God restoring love and goodness and beauty to a world that's starving for it. And each of us is part of making all things new. So I'm going to pray for us now, and then I'll call whoever's coming up for communion to come on up. Lord, you say in Isaiah 42 that 
you've been silent for a long time and you've been quiet and held back, but now you cry out like a woman in childbirth. You gasp and you pant. And thank you for gasping and panting for us because honestly we feel the same when we watch what's going on, when we feel the pain in our lives and when we watch internationally the pain that's being dealt. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to labor to bring your goodness. Lord, would you lead us? in how to share your goodness to those around us. And Lord, we pray that you would land that message in our hearts today that we are your beloved children, that we are good and that we are born again in your spirit, that we have been chosen and loved by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.